and welcome to another episode of the O3C podcast, coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined, as always, by my oldest friend, Chris Dow. Mixed bean chili. And we are going to be chatting about video games. And chili. Maybe. Announcement! Announcement! Hello! Before we begin this next episode, we want to cordially invite you over to o3c.game support to consider supporting us in one or many of a number of ways. On that page are links to our Patreon page, where you can pledge a monthly donation in return for a number of sweet, sweet perks. There's a one-off PayPal donation button if you want to chuck us a few quid to say thanks. Then there are links to share the podcast and the website on social media, which goes an enormous way to helping grow our audience. And also, you can, if you're listening to this on a platform such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave us a review and a nice big ranking to help the algorithms of the world pick us to pimp out. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Christopher Dow, we are back. We are. And it's a Playdate update. It is. We're going to talk about Snack and Sasquatches. We are. But first of all, we are not going to talk about what we've been playing because have you seen the gameplay trailer presentation for the legend of zelda tears of the kingdom that came out in this last week of course i have of course you have of course you have because as we all know you love a zelda game and by that i mean you love a zelda game (laughs) and that was breath of the wild (laughs) yeah yeah i mean of the zelda games i enjoy it's 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 right up there (laughs) no breath of the wild is outstanding and The trailer looks really exciting. I cannot believe that they've managed to find a way to inject even more versatility into the game with this new fusing system. That basically they've just looked at the way that players have interacted with Breath of the Wild in terms of like all of the ridiculous sort of hacks that people have done with like putting a platform on a thing and then using your magnesis to do this and charge it so you can fly through the air and go, well, if you like doing that, let's make it so you can do that. And you can now mix everything with everything for just the most incredible creativity. Like, I cannot wait just to play around with that and just start thinking about how I'm exploring and how I'm approaching combat with just even more ridiculous ideas. And you can understand why it's taken six years to make it, because the amount of quality testing they're going to have to have done to get that mechanic working is, um, is absolutely unreal unreal it looks stunning and huge and refined and i can't wait i think it's it's really impressive that breath of the wild like you said is six years old now six years plus isn't it essentially because it came out at launch and people are still finding new ways to do things Mm. in breath of the wild there's at least one clip shared a week by some absolutely crazy players around the world (laughs) doing things that obviously were not intended when the game was built but it was robust enough to allow you to do these things. Mm. You know, the, the systems interlock in such a way that people said, well, if I can do A and I can do B, there's probably a way of kind of mixing them together. And yeah, like you say, it's been a long time, I think, of them looking at that and designing around the idea that we need more of this mm. and we need to just give players more yeah. abilities, I guess, just more ways to interact with the world, more ways yeah. to kind of pick stuff up, more ways to smash things together, more ways to get around. More wasteless float through the floor. <laughs> like there's know, all these different new things. Uh, it's going to be really exciting. One of the things I really love about the sort of Zelda sequels that we've had, because we haven't had many of them, is the way that they'll take 
the world, the characters, the assets, and then just go, you think you know what you're getting with a sequel because certain things are going to look and feel very similar. But actually, we've turned it all on its head and yeah. you're going to be playing this in a very, very different way. You look at something like how Majora's Mask works compared to Ocarina of Time and it's so, so staggeringly different despite being on the surface and if you look at the library of assets in the game identical yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and then you look at like the way that they evolved the game boy stuff with the oracle of ages and oracle of seasons those two games bring something remarkably different not only to each other but to you know link's awakening and link's yeah. awakening dx as well and yeah the thought that they're obviously doing that now with Breath of the Wild with that blueprint is mm, so exciting because you know that even though they've shown some of the new mechanics we haven't even seen half a percent of what's actually <laughs> going to be in the game we still don't yeah, really know yeah. you know really what things are going to be like how it's going to play and that's how I want it to stay you know because I, I was in two minds about whether or not I watched it or not because I didn't want anything to be spoiled but then Nintendo don't do that with well they didn't do that with Breath of the Wild you know and I just can't wait it's going to be good It'll be a 10 out of 10, won't it? Yeah. What are you buying? What are you playing? Do you want to know what I've been playing this week, Chris? It is how we start these shows off. Uh, so yeah, I, I think to keep what. to form. <laughs> Especially <laughs> after I've just played the jingle. It'd be weird. <laughs> <laughs> Go yeah, on. Here's, here's the quiz. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably, still still playing Dead Cells. I realised that I'd never played the boss rush mode in the game. And you can play four different levels of boss rush. So I'm, I'm enjoying doing that. And that's just really, really good fun. The other thing I have continued to do is, of course, play Resident Evil 4. Resident Evil 4. <laughs> it continues to be unbearably brilliant. I'm now well into the second area of the game, the castle area, and it looks jaw-droppingly good. It's st- it's still full of all the just the brilliant level design as well as the aesthetic design, silly puzzles, hidden treasures, and all of that stuff. I've got Ashley in tow now, which is proving to be a significantly improved experience to to this aspect in the original game. And this yeah. this was the aspect why. Resident Evil 4 wasn't in my top 10 and why it ended up being in like the 30s in my list because Ashley, I just wanted to shoot her and you can't. <laughs> Can you shoot her here? Can you shoot no, her in the remake? but you don't really want to because okay. it, it, she's a lot more bearable. Yeah. She's certainly more autonomous and there's now a new control. Just to a press of the button, you can choose whether she sticks close to you or she like goes and finds some cover and it, it, it just makes for those bigger battles with her to be more well for a start more dynamic but also easier to navigate and thankfully the dialogue and character of Ashley have been vastly improved with dramatic rewrites in this remake it's not entirely without like the schlocky B-movie notes which obviously fit with the larger tone going on in these games but you can't now actively look up her skirt for some (laughs) cheeky comments yeah yeah. Similarly, the, the character of Ada Wong is now not wearing a skimpy red dress with a slit up to her armpit, uh, which <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I'm conducting my mercenary work, I go for something yeah. just a bit more practical. But it's, it's wonderful to see that so many of these key elements have been addressed and vastly improved. And 
I had this like when I replayed the original not too long ago there's a whole section of the game that I just sort of forgot about and it's sort of between the castle and then the third area the island there's this whole like underground mines and caverns and stuff like this and I, again I'd forgotten about it and I'm just doing that now and it's just it's so good and I'm already I'm looking forward to finishing the game and just cracking straight on with new game plus because yeah I want to hoover up some of the collectibles and the secrets that I've missed this time round but that's the only downside to this structure of the game because I, I love exploring so much you do go through multiple points of no return throughout the game yeah, which means yeah. that if you do miss something your chance is, is gone you know this time round but they are flagged which is quite good and quite subtly as well because basically the last time you see the merchant before a point of no return he'll say something like well you better finish what you've been doing around here because you know, <laughs> might not come back um, and, uh, and I kind of quite like that yeah keeps it gamey it keeps it game exactly that's the thing i don't really like points of no return in games because they fill me with anxiety but that's that's a me issue yeah capcom i think are moving towards a more like open interconnected world setup because like village was sort of constructed like that which is nice it's it's more metroidvania because you can sort of go back to areas with new abilities and new keys or whatever and find more things and that's nice and it would have been nice to have that with resident evil 4 but then it is just so gosh darn diggity fun to play that <laughs> playing through it numerous times is just going to be a pleasure not a chore and yeah. yeah it's so good it's so good what have you played this week chris very little new stuff it's one of these weeks where it's not that i've been quite as busy as some weeks but don't know in the downtime i have had i've just been playing canon on the evercade that strategy rpg that i was playing last week ah. and i'm still really enjoying it like it's not too taxing there's just enough strategy to each battle to make it feel engaging without being overly complicated yeah and i've quite enjoyed that i think if someone was big into this as a genre they'd say this is over simple this is a bit dull but for someone like me who is not playing these games back to back forever it's just something a bit different that i can sort of play and quite enjoy i'm at a stage in the game now where each skirmish requires you to think carefully about the characters you're going to take into combat some might be better suited to the enemy types that are going to be present in that stage than others and that's kept you know, what could otherwise be a bit samey, relatively fresh for me at least. Thinking, do I need to take a character with high movement and speed stats to try and outflank enemies? Or do I need a character who maybe can fly to cut straight across obstacles, you know, as the crow flies to avoid certain encounters altogether? Do I have enough magic restoring items in stock to rely on characters that use summons, but might have very weak melee attacks? Or do I double down on focusing just on brawlers and a healer to just keep them going? Even failure for a poor choice isn't too big a deal as well because you retain all gained levels and experience even if you fuck up. Oh, and nice. it's surprisingly generous for a game of 1996. Generally, that's not <laughs> yeah. how those games would run. Yeah. So that's been quite nice. So that if I do fail a stage, it might have taken quite a while. I can think, well, you know, a bit of a setback. I'll come back tomorrow. I'll give it another go knowing that, well, I did level up twice. So it's going to be two levels easier. And that's quite nice. Outside of little dabbles here and there with Fire Emblem games on the 3DS and stuff like that, I've never been that big into strategy RPGs. Yeah. But for some reason, this game has just struck the right sort of balance for me. Guides I've checked online say I'm about two thirds of the way through the game. And I've played it for 13 or 14 hours at this point. Stages are getting a lot longer. And that means I have had to actually use the Evercade's save states to pause my progress rather than just relying on the in-game save thing. And I have a feeling that the remaining 10 or so battles may take essentially the same time again as I've already put into it if I'm going to try and finish it properly. But it's good. I like it. I really haven't played much else 
this week other than a quick playthrough of the new The World Ends With You tracks in Theatre Rhythm one morning before school. Oh, fun. That's, uh, yeah, I didn't realise that was... Square Enix. Is it? Yeah. Uh. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's cool. Like, all the tracks are quite up-tempo. They're bouncy. You could even say goey, as Rita Dunn might say. Oh, yeah. Songs of that series, it just adds more variety to kind of the Final Fantasy themed music in the main game. Mm. And I think there'll be a lot of fun to try and master properly when I next get the urge to dedicate a few weeks to playing Theatre Rhythm properly again. Because I've I've kind of cooled down after having two, three weeks where that's literally all I did. Yeah. Now I've stepped back and I just play it in little fits and starts. Stits and farts. Despite being the big proponent of buying physical Switch games, I went digital with Theatre Rhythm because frustratingly there was no way to get the 30 or so additional DX exclusive tracks if you bought it on yeah. a cartridge. But... I don't regret that choice, really, because having it permanently on the device alongside Tetris 99 and Grindstone and other kind of digital games means that I have instant access no matter where I am. And that really suits something like Theatre Rhythm, because sometimes I do just want to play three tracks and then do something else. And that kind of sub 10 minute play session really fits the instant on nature of a digital title really well. At some stage when the game drops in price, I'll absolutely buy a hard copy for the shelf, you know, for the shelf prosperity. But for actual play, digital has worked really nicely. I've been playing something else, and it's a mobile game, and that is the new Tomb Raider arcade roguelite type game called Tomb Raider Reloaded. You may be shocked, I have literally never heard of this <laughs> title. So I hadn't either, and I was <laughs> and I, I was on IGN, and I was reading an article about something, and then I saw like a related media article, whatever, it just said tomb raider reloaded revealed and i was like oh i wonder if that's like the film reboot or like the new game in the mainline series and i checked it out and it's just this little mobile game and honestly i wouldn't usually have given this the time of day because its freemium structure is as aggressive as any other game that yeah. i've seen yeah. within that i played like the first few seconds of the game and it is liberally riddled with energy meters in-game currency of all kinds geared entirely towards rinsing you of your money but i won the lottery and (laughs) no i haven't (laughs) and have now spent it all no but i saw that there were actually two versions of the game on the app store one of which is the netflix version because i don't know if you've seen much of this but netflix are now doing a similar type of thing to apple arcade I did hear about that, and then I couldn't quite get my head around what that was, and then I just never bothered looking into it. Like you, I'd seen it, and I was like, oh, okay, Netflix are just doing free games for yeah. some reason. But it basically is, if you have a Netflix account, you log into the game with that, and then play it. And it is like Apple Arcade, where those games are free, but they have the freemium content stripped out of them. So... I've been having a really, really fun time playing the Netflix version of Tomb Raider Reloaded. This is bizarre to me. I, I want to <laughs> <wanna> find <laughs> out what's going on. So let me tell you about the game. It's a very, very simple setup. You basically have to fight your way through numerous stages in each of the locations from the original Tomb Raider game. So the first level is the caves. Then you have the city of Vilsabama, then the Lost Valley, etc., etc. And each of these stages will have about 30 levels to get through. And you control Lara with a little virtual joystick running around to avoid enemy fire and traps. 
And when you stand still, you automatically attack what's near you. And then you get experience for beating enemies and bosses. And then when you level up, you get to pick an upgrade perk, whether that's like improving your damage or your attack speed or adding like poison or ice or fire damage to your weapon or adding in like additional bullets and ricochets or laying mines when you're standing still. And then you get stronger as you try and get through as many stages as you can and try and beat the final boss of the level. If you fail, you go back to your hub and you can use all of the collectibles you've accrued on your run then to upgrade your gear and unlock new stuff to get stronger, to take on more on your next run. And it's very, very simple and it's really fun and really addictive. I've ended up putting quite a lot of hours into it. One of the nice things is I did get to a point where I saw that there was like for, I don't know, a thousand gems in the store, there was like a really, really good weapon. And I was like, ah, oh, I wonder if there is a way I could just... I could just buy a few gems just so I could get it because you earn gems at you yeah. know in the game to then spend on chests to unlock or whatever and you can't put money into the game that's as, good and I was for like you. that's really that's really, really good. good that's really good for me so yeah it's been a very very good toilet game and I'd recommend giving game. it a blast you can play it in portrait mode with one finger and uh, 10 out of 10 from Jonathan Dunn for a mobile game it's fantastic it's just very satisfying it's good fun and it's got really good music in it as well it's using music from the original game so uh, like the menu music when you're like doing all your upgrades and stuff is the fantastic pause menu music from the original Tomb Raider which is beautiful it's really nice that it's got all these nods to the original game that I love so much there's a whole bunch of good games under this Mm. Netflix subscription (laughs) 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 I just, I've never even, I had not heard of this as a service. I have a Netflix subscription. I must just be so kind of inclined just to ignore all marketing from anything you email me. I've probably had 50 emails saying, please enjoy your free games. And I'm like, fuck off, fuck (laughs) off. I'm not interested in all this shit. I could be playing something fun. I think that one of the first games that came out on it was a Stranger Things game. Yes. So I think that it was like, oh, Netflix game, Stranger Things. I'm like, oh, fine. Netflix have released a game. It's not like the game's been released on Netflix, yeah. if you know what I mean. But there we go. Have you played anything else? I haven't, but I did want to touch on something that I don't even know if I've mentioned before, but it's certainly game adjacent. I've been collecting video game soundtracks on vinyl for years Ooh. now, like pretty much since the modern boom started with I Am 8-Bit, putting out some old rare scores like Banjo-Kazooie and Perfect Dark back in like the mid-2010s, I say, could be slightly older. And over time, more and more publishers have been embracing the market and putting out nice boutique releases of classic soundtracks for games like Shenmue or Rez or Tetris Effect or Hotline Miami or 2016's Doom. Like There's a real range of stuff in terms of genre representation. What I wanted to mention though and what's been really exciting is seeing the bootleg market that has popped up. And I don't mean bootleg as in groups re-releasing snide copies of existing stuff, but rather dedicated super fans creating extremely lavish releases for titles that otherwise just would not get representation on vinyl like nintendo for example are famously stubborn when it comes to meeting market demand for anything fans want (laughs) yeah and as such basically bootleggers have created insane sets for almost all the zelda games for star fox for every mario game every mario kart game made by fans for fans and pressed in total secrecy to avoid the wrath of nintendo yeah Getting hold of these releases can be really tough because by the nature of it, most bootleg labels operate closed door policies where you need to know the right people to get invited into the winner's circle in the first place. And then if you do manage to get in, it's then proper fight club style rules. Just we do not talk about this. If you're sharing an image of the release, do not say what the label was. Don't say where it's come from because people are putting in like serious money off their own backs. 
that could just get cancelled at any moment. Yeah. But in the last few months, I've been really fortunate to have found myself able to procure a few notable releases, for me at least, that I didn't think I'd ever come across. And that's been really exciting. So Skitchin from the Sega Mega Drive, it's a weird yeah. rollerblading spin-off of Road Rash yeah, yeah, yeah. that features really good chiptune approximations of kind of punk and grunge songs and never thought that would get a release mm. why would it you know it was published by ea back in the day they're not gonna bring back something like that but i love the game and the soundtrack as a kid and knowing that i now have this beautiful vinyl set is fantastic you know it came with one-off hand-drawn illustrations like hand-numbered hand-penciled hand-drawn illustrations just popped inside the sleeve it's got a load of boutique stickers inside it it's bonkers that something like that has been pressed by a dedicated group. Jurassic Park is another oh, that I've managed to get hold of via a second-hand sale. Unbelievable. Jonathan Dunn, of course. Exactly. The set includes both the NES and SNES soundtracks, courtesy of your namesake. <laughs> I can sign it for you if you want. <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> you can then sell it with authentic Jonathan Dunn signature. And I won't be lying. And, I won't and you be lying. won't be lying. But like this release, yeah. the sleeve had specifically commissioned art that they paid an artist to do of Sam Neill and the dinosaurs in the front. Amazing. The record's got a beautiful like splatter colorway on the vinyl itself. It comes with this insane guidebook that presents each track as if it's a paleontological artifact. <laughs> like it, oh, beautiful. It puts most genuine vinyl releases to shame. Yeah. Because it's just a group who say, I love the soundtrack to Jurassic Park and I want to make this happen. Yeah. And then they just work in secrecy until it just appears one day and everyone goes wild. That's brilliant. Like, over the last few months, or, or the last year, I'd say, I've also managed to pick up bootleg copies of Sonic 2, of Vector Man from the Mega Drive, of Animal Crossing Wild World, Donkey Kong Country, Super Mario 64, and a few others as well. And in the absence of legit sanctioned releases for these games, these sets more than make up for what would otherwise just be holes on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> They're not cheap. You know, they do cost a bit of money. But once you know that whole process that people are clubbing together to create these sets and standing to lose... A lot of personal investment if the wrong people get wind of their work. It just makes me love them even more. Because it's like the gall of someone saying, you're sending off the masters of Mario 64 to a pressing plant and signing the document just to say, yep, yep, my, my music. Yeah, I, I made that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like, you know, fan translations or modding projects like Clone Hero. It's just such a labour of love for the video game vinyl community. And I'm just really happy to own some of these because they are just really nice to have to look at and, and to listen to. In terms of games, I'm on holiday from school now for a couple of weeks. So we'll see if I manage to play anything more gamey before we come back in a week to discuss some of this stuff again. Because I'm sure I will have a bit of downtime to enjoy some old horseshit. <laughs> so, I mean, seeing that I've had a week of playing essentially nothing, you appear to have had a week of playing essentially lots yeah and I, I have a feeling you wouldn't go out on just saying i played a netflix mobile title of Tomb Raider. Uh, there's something else there's something else in your locker you're absolutely right i have played another game and i've managed to sort of play games in sort of quite a bitty way the only reason why i've managed to put several hours into resident evil 4 is because i've been waking up at about like half past three four o'clock in the morning most Yay. mornings not being able to go back to sleep and just being like well if i'm gonna be tired and pissed off then I may as well be doing that and playing Resident Evil. So I'll get up, I'll get myself a cup of coffee, and I'll put in two or three hours into Resident Evil before I have to get my daughter up for the day. Yeah. And that's been great. But then, you know, throughout the day, in the evening, you know, sat on the sofa, Tomb Raider's been really good fun. But also, I picked up a new game that's come out on the Switch called Crano Origins. This is the second game this episode that I have 
never ever heard of. <laughs> I've not seen it on any new release page. I've not seen it on the Steam listings. What is it? Okay, so K R A I N O. Crano. Crano. Yeah. Right. I picked it up because it got a really good review on Nintendo Life. It got like an eight or nine out of ten review, and I had a, some spare like eShop credit. It's only about a tenner anyway. And it's a really, really nice retro-inspired action platform game. It's it's not dissimilar to, like, classic Mario or uh, Castlevania or Mega Man. But its easiest comparison is Shovel Knight, because it's a modern game in the 8-bit style. And also, you attack, actually, in a very similar way to Shovel Knight's titular shovel. But in Crano, you are a skeleton man, and you have a big scythe. The levels are really intricately constructed, with lots of secrets to find. And they've got, like, this slight sort of Mario Brothers 3 vibe of how it all fits together. Yeah. I mean, it's not doing anything hugely original, but what it is doing, it's doing very, very well and very slickly. The reason why I picked it up is because in the negative section of the review, it said, might be a bit too short for some people. And I was like, put that in the pros. Love a short Uh, game. (laughs) It was like, you could probably 100% it in three hours. And I did it in just over three hours. Perfect. There's about eight levels. And then there's like a sort of challenge remix of each of the levels as well one of the really nice things is that all the levels are styled like totally differently in the same way that like a mario game would have eight different worlds with like five or six levels in each instead it's just one level in each world but they're all very very distinct with like different enemies and different uh, mechanics and stuff like that it's just really really good i did a bit of digging to sort of try and talk a little bit more about it and it looks like there's a, a sort of sequel in development called Crano Reanimated, which yeah. looks to be sort of adopting like a 16-bit aesthetic, similar to like what the Messenger did with like yes. having those two styles. But from what I can see, it looks like Reanimated was in development first before Origins. And so like I ended up going on a bit of a deep dive and I saw that Reanimated has a demo on Steam, which right. came out before Origins was released. But now Reanimated has a release date for, like, later this year. And I also saw that there was a failed Kickstarter campaign for Crano Reanimated. And okay. I, I, from what I can tell, the game is predominantly made by one guy. Yeah. So, like, it's possible that he tried to get funding to make Crano Reanimated, to make this fully-fledged 16-bit game. When he didn't get that, he then sort of downsized his ideas to make this smaller 8-bit-styled game. And now is using the profit from that to develop reanimated maybe i don't know i don't know that makes sense that's possible it's possible let us know if you know but yeah if you're a fan of classic mario games castlevania shovel knight i definitely recommend giving crano a crane go it's a play date. It's a play date. It's a play date. It's a play date. Right, it's what you're here for. It is. It's a play date update. Two games this week Snack and Sasquatches. I'm going to tell you first about Snack, which is a then. game by Zach Gage, who I'm a fan of. And actually. I mentioned his game, Really Bad Chess, on a Playdate update before when we were talking about Questy Chess. Yes, I didn't realise that was him. Indeed. And I I didn't realise at that point that he had actually made a game for the Playdate as well. So that's fun. He's primarily done sort of like smaller mobile games. Uh, He made Spell Tower. Yes, that's good. That's a good one. Yeah. Spell Tower's good. He made one called Flip Flop Solitaire and one called Good Sudoku. 
And both of those games are similar in concept to really bad chess, which is basically going, right, here's the rules of a game that you know, but I'm changing something because I think it will make it more fun. Yeah. And he does that very successfully. The other game he made was called Card of Darkness, which was one of the early Apple Arcade games. It was like a sort of card-based dungeon crawler, really good art style, really, really good. All absolute bangers of mobile games. I also saw that he made the Mario Clock which is a physical clock made from <laughs> the fastest computer-assisted run of the original Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. So there's the computer-assisted run of that, so it's like what's like literally the fastest Mario can be played. Yeah. And then what this clock does is every day it displays one frame of that video, and then that runs for 25 years until it gets to the end of it. <laughs> the mad thing is, I now realise that all of these things that I've just been talking about basically sounds like the April Fool's episode, and I'm trying to wind <laughs> you up. I'm trying to wind somebody up with these things yeah, that I've yeah. just come up with. It's totally unintentional that we're recording this on well, April the 2nd now, so it wouldn't even work. No, but I think gone. the best way to describe the work that Zach does is outside of the box. Yeah. He'll take a simple premise and turn it on its head. It's, it's very much like what-if development. And that brings us to Snack. And Snack is spelt S-N-A-K. And it's left the E off the end of the word snake, essentially. Because what he's done is basically asked, what if classic mobile game Snake had a jump button? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the concept of, of the original snake is that you are a snake gobbling up fruit and with each fruit you gobble your snake grows longer yes. and you need to keep weaving your way to find more fruit whilst avoiding your ever elongating body because if you collide with yourself or the side of the screen you'll die and that's where Zach comes in because he's added a jump button so you can jump over yourself or indeed onto yourself and the reason why you need a bit of extra mobility in this game is that the fruit are now absolutely gunning for you. Like yeah, evil little Pac-Men. bastards. Little bastards. <laughs> GM food's gone very, very, well, very well, probably, actually. <laughs> and they are, these little fruit fuckers are trying to eat your head, eat your snack's head as a snake. No, eat your snake's head as a snack. And the way they typically do this is by chomping onto a part of your body and then running up your body towards your head. So you need to eat them either before they attach themselves to you or by jumping onto the back of your own body and then eating them before they get to your head. Yes. I don't know if I've made it sound more complex than it is. Obviously, you've played it, Chris. So you, yeah, yeah. That makes sense to you. But when you're playing it, it is actually just really straightforward because it is just classic Snake, which everyone knows with one or two extra rules to integrate. And there's multiple difficulties for you to choose from, which basically just determines the, the speed that you go at. And you just need to try and get a high score. That's that's it, you know? I, I, I mean, I've said before on these that, you know, score-chasing games aren't necessarily my bag because I don't really find too much satisfaction from beating my own high score unless yeah. there's, like, a particular score to aim for to unlock something else, you know, etc. But the game is slick smartly designed and once again it's a really good example of how Zach Gage can iterate on a well-established idea in a fun bizarre and yeah just very creative creative way how did you get on with it Chris I quite liked it as a little snake I'm not a clone like you say it's it's snake but iterating on snake I guess yeah like I read an interview with Zach Gage where he said when he was given the playdate to have a look at to try and think about an idea for it Everyone was going, oh, the crank looks good and, and these things like that. And he said, I just like that I can work on a product that has a button. 
because he works pretty much exclusively on touchscreens. And he said he wanted to make something that was quick and arcadey that you could come back to in five years and still know how to play and would just be based purely around this idea of very binary, have I pressed the button or not sort of input. And it works well. You know, it is a snake game. You are going for a high score, collecting the food. It feels quite good when you manage to line up a little jump properly to grab a piece of fruit as it's going down your body. So there's kind of an element of strategy to how you need to approach the crossover as it were, mm. because obviously if it gets to your head, you lose. So you've got to think about how do I stop that from happening? And, you know, it, it then naturally has these little daring moments where you don't think you're going to get there in time and then you just about manage to and it feels quite nice. But it is really hard to say that much about because mm. it is Snake with a jump button. <laughs> yeah. Which is not a bad thing, but it is Snake with a jump button. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to hear about the other game this week, which is a lot more than snake with a jump button yeah yeah what's it called it's called sasquatches another s game i mean if snack is a very minimalist thing that is iterating on something we all understand and know if we ever had a nokia 3210 sasquatches has a lot more going on like if you do any research into sasquatches online pretty much every first look or review goes oh it's a tactics game like advanced wars and it's spliced with a photography game like pokemon snap and they're not wrong. It's very, uh, it's very hard to think of a better comparison point, really. As Sasquatches is absolutely a stage-based tactics game with grid movement and energy systems where your goal is to take photographs of Sasquatches or other cryptids, as they're called in the game. And it definitely has elements of that sort of Pokemon Snap-style scoring system as well. But it is really complex and layered. And even if it doesn't always work quite as smoothly as you may wish, certainly at the start when you're sort of picking through and kind of understanding how things work, it's not because it's bad. It's because this is a systems-based game of real ambition. Mm. And generally, especially on the play day, I will always take a slightly wonky but excitingly new and fresh game over something instantly familiar like Snack, which is taking someone we know and then, you know, just doing little bits to kind of tweak it in some way. Yeah. The basic setup of a stage in Sasquatches is that you are moving your team of characters around a map. You're uncovering areas fog of war style, as you do in most of these games, in an attempt to locate the beasties of whichever stage you're on. Your team consists of a camera operator, a lead host, because this is meant to be kind of like a group who are filming their adventures in the forest looking for Sasquatches and whatever else. And you also have a burly guy who can lure or calm monsters with you as well. And the aim is to manoeuvre the Sasquatches et al. into an arrangement on the map that allows you to then enter a first-person camera mode and snap as many of them as possible in one scene, with bonus points then being awarded for clarity, composition and layout, and then a few extra modifiers like including teammates in the shot or capturing certain cryptid actions will add a bit of extra score as well. As you move around the map, you need to balance your character's health as they can be attacked by the same monsters you're attempting to log, as well as their battery power, which allows the camera operator, for example, to actually use their camera, and the host to use a smartphone to either illuminate an area with its torch or to use the front-facing camera for a quick and dirty snap to keep your score ticking over. Both health and battery can be topped up, either by moving closer to your team's van, which sort of acts like another character, I guess, in that it can be manoeuvred around the map too, but only on designated road spaces, or by finding a campsite on the grid which can then be used as a place to stock up on energy and and battery and everything else it's quite a lot to consider all at once quite a lot to think about each stage has a set goal that you choose at the start 
So it might be that you are trying to capture an image of every cryptid. It could be that you're trying to snap a shot worth a certain amount of points. And levels will basically carry on until that goal is met or your team has been vanquished by the marauding Sasquatches. Advanced Wars and Pokemon Snap may be the most obvious X plus Y reference points for the game. But the way you choose the goal you're working towards on each stage actually made me think a little of Cave Noir because you had to sort okay, of decide yeah, yeah, yeah. what you were yeah. going to do in every play. Yeah, good spot. And the way the first-person camera scenes are rendered really remind me of early golf games, like Mario Golf on the Game Boy Color. <laughs> yeah. Because it basically extrapolates the relative distance of objects and enemies from the grid layout, and then will scale the big sprites accordingly in the first-person camera view. And it's nice. I think it's a good game. Like After about 20 minutes or so, I understood enough of how everything worked to actually start making a bit of progress in stages. Mm. And at that point, it becomes a really enjoyable little strategy game. What I liked about the rhythm of it is that because you're not attempting to take enemies down in a traditional way, it becomes a game of influencing their movement and positioning as opposed to being about leading your characters on the front foot all the time. Mm. So most tactics games are all about getting to an encounter first so that you have the best vantage point for cover or a slight attacking bonus for drawing first blood or something like that. And it makes a lot of these games, and I can say this quite confidently after playing Canon for the last two weeks, <laughs> they feel very direct. You're trying to just engage the enemy, deal with the encounters and move forwards. You're generally trying to get there as quickly as possible, almost as the crow flies, because that's going to give you the best chance of starting an encounter with some sort of advantage. But in Sasquatches, you need to approach things completely differently because finding a monster isn't enough. Like ideally you're aiming to find them in a nice open space so that tree trunks don't block your shot. You're aiming to try and bunch them up so that a single wide angle snap is going to score maximum points for having two or three people on screen. You're aiming to have your characters already set in position and the enemies being the ones that actually initiate the encounter because then you won't have a points penalty to photographing directly after moving because it says there's camera blur if you've run into position and taken a it's shot. A nice touch. So it's all little things you have to start considering. It just flips how you would normally play these games. Now, I've not played it, <laughs> but I understand the game Into the Breach operates with some... <laughs> now, I haven't played Sasquatches. <laughs> because in that game, each small map is about taking down enemies, but also manipulating their movement around the map to protect certain structures or give yourself a tactical advantage that way. Mm. And... Everyone seemed to rave about that when it came out because it's a very different take on that sort of XCOM formula or any other tactics game, to be honest, that I've already mentioned today. And I think that's pretty cool. And Sasquatches is, I guess, in that lineage that it's taking, again, sort of the structure of a tactics game that we recognise, but really flipping a lot of the individual parts of that to make it feel quite unfamiliar, I guess, especially when you start out. The art in the game is a bit quirky, I spent a lot of my time looking at the screen and wishing the character designs were more stylized like Demon Quest or yeah. maybe more visually articulate like Saturday Edition. But these nitpicks don't take away from a game that is doing something genuinely exciting and very new with its points of inspiration. So far more than Snack is just iterating on Snake to just add a jump. This is saying, okay, well, you know what a grid is, you know what a camera is, but the way we've melded these together is actually very, very different to what you might have expected. Did you enjoy taking pictures of hairy boys and hairy girls in the forest? I think your summation of it is, well, for a start, spot on. I think there is so much going on in it. Mm. There's good stuff and bad stuff. 
yeah. that goes with that. Like, as I was sort of learning about the game, there were so many elements that just really made me smile. I was yeah. just like, that's really clever. That's a really clever way of, like, interpreting that mechanic, like, classic mechanics from, like, things like Advance Wars, but being like, oh, actually, no, it's you've got to think about finding and setting up a base camp or getting, yeah. like you said, the right angle. The little touches, like avoiding getting motion blur when taking a picture that twist on that mechanic is brilliant but there's so much to take in yeah and it feels like when you pick up a play date you're signing up for a specific type of experience yeah and i'm gonna sort of probably sound a little bit hypocritical here because i think (laughs) the experience it feels like you're mostly signing up for is something like an arcade high score chaser type game and that's not something that, like I said, I particularly like. So usually I get very pleasantly surprised when it's something that's more than that. Yeah. But I feel that the only thing I can say about Sasquatch is, is I think that the game is too is too well developed and too fully developed for the play date. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's not dissimilar to Casual Birder in terms of like the things that it's asking you to do in terms of like how it's using photography to like generate quests and the way that you need to then move and, and think about things and capture things. And I think Casual Birder kind of got it right for this hardware and yeah. the, and the way that you're playing. Whereas I think that Sasquatches deserves to be and would be a better fit on something like the Switch. Yeah. If yeah. it was then more graphically developed, like you said, because like what they've done and getting this game on the play day is insane. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's absolutely phenomenal. It is I think the most complete in the most typical sense, gaming experience that we've had in this season. Yeah, I think you're probably right. You know, it's extraordinary what they've done because it's not just going, right, let's do a turn-based strategy game or like a real-time strategy game or something like ridiculous. It's gone for a very specific idea in terms of like, we want to do something about cryptozoology and all of this stuff and going like, it's an incredibly considered game in terms of how it works and what they want to do with it. But it was just too much to take in whilst I was having a shit. (laughs) I think it's really interesting that the way we've been covering this stuff is obviously we've had, you know, a week or two in between each kind of play date update as we have been presenting them. But because we're doing other stuff, because we have jobs, because we have, you know, whatever other responsibilities. Got a child. Yeah, that's a big one for you. <laughs> but it's it's not that we are sat down and playing these games for two solid weeks. You know, we're yeah. finding little pockets of time, we're picking through so we can have these thoughts, we can discuss them together. But, you know, if you buy a game that you really enjoy, say, in a regular console on a regular machine that could be the game you're going to play for several weeks but because we are almost indebted to the season format that we're trying to get through and explore all this stuff and see it i think games like this will struggle more to be the ones that you keep coming back to because there is more to come back to but it's not as immediate as something else yeah so as much as the way we've talked about it today i think we've been more positive in terms of the conceptual to sort of realization stages of sasquatches versus snack yeah if i pick the play date up and i'm having a little poo and i just need to entertain myself for 30 seconds probably gonna load snack yeah <laughs> you know of the two and that's quite strange so it's like you say the play date has this it's a unique proposition in terms of mm. what it offers how you have to approach it and down to little things like i'm sat in my lounge now if i have the play date in front of me now i need to move seat to be able to see it properly i yeah. don't i don't know a very well lit lounge yeah bathroom blazing sun above me <laughs> like it's <laughs> the brightest fucking room in the house so it's absolutely perfect suddenly the screen absolutely sings <laughs> but yeah. 
again, that's not the place I want to sit for 45 minutes and try and pick through a kind of long strategy stage. No. It's the type of place I want to have my 3310 and just go for a high score on Snake. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't really know what I'm saying or where I'm coming from. It'll be interesting once the season is wrapped up, I guess, if there will be games that we will naturally gravitate back to, if there'll be games that we never come back to again. Mm. Kind of what does the console kind of look like when we're not working through it kind of systemically like we have done this season? Like, Is it something we're still going to pick up? Is it something that we're going to have a few favourites that we want to actually flesh out and get through? You know, I still haven't had time to finish Saturday edition. And that's something that I loved for the the little bit of time I was playing it. But it's just finding the time to actually say, no, this is what I'm going to do tonight. And Sasquatches, I think, is one of those. There's an awful lot here. Mm. It could be something really quite special if I was willing to say, oh, for five hours this week, I'm going to play this little play date game. Yeah, because I think I, I did probably say about Casual Birder, I kind of wish there was more to it. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. like I said, like I think there is going to be a level of hypocrisy when it comes to critiquing <laughs> these games because it is so new. Yeah. And I think nobody has really found exactly what the play date is perfect for. Yeah. you know, And that's part of the exciting thing about it is the fact that there are all these different games and all these different developers going, what about this? And yeah. people going, maybe, <laughs> maybe, no, n- never do that again. Yeah. Never do that again. If you're going to write a game with lots of text, learn how to fucking write <laughs> or I'll lose more than my marbles <laughs> as an example. Just hypothetical example. But... Just thinking, just, <laughs> just, just, just off the top of my, off the top of my noggin. Next Playdate update is Forest Burns Up in Smoke by that's, Nels Anderson. That's the Firewatch spin-off, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and the other game is Battleship Godios. I'm assuming it is a spin on battleships. Yeah. We'll see. Tune in in two weeks' time for that. Yeah. So there we go. That is our latest Playdate update. Have you been playing your Playdate? Let us know if you have. Let us know what games you're enjoying. Let us know what other games you're enjoying. Let us know if you're playing games. Let us know if you're enjoying yourselves. No, don't do that. Not like that. But you can chat to us on social media. We are at O3C Games on pretty much everything. Or you can nail us down individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. And I am at Chaz underscore Hodges. And do please check out our website, O3C.Games, for all of our latest reviews, think pieces, articles, videos, the whole back catalogue of our podcast loads of cool shit i'll see you next week for just a just a just a bloody update on what we've been playing just a regular update up your leg date <laughs>